and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Writing a sermon for this week is very difficult. It's difficult because each one of you represents a, a different piece along a continuum of life and happiness and death and grief and all of those pieces. Some people won't connect to the all saints, the death thing, and, and they say, man, that's too morbid. We should celebrate life. Why in the world would we talk about dead people and deal with that? You Lutherans are nuts. Why in the world would you give a whole Sunday away to talk about death? And then the other side of that are people who are here right now and will be here throughout the morning who having the loved one's name read with the bell rung and seeing the picture on the screen in a few moments and seeing the name in the bulletin, it, it, it helps them along that way of grief a little bit. And they're reminded that their loved ones are not alone or abandoned or sitting out at the corner of Fairhaven and Tustin Avenue, but they are with Jesus. And then there are those who've lost loved ones years ago, like me. I get choked up when we sing for all the saints because I think back to 1985. And seeing that hymn with a church packed up at Zion in Anaheim and my dad's coffin laid out right there. And I turn into a mush of gooey preacher after Carissa plays about the first two measures of that hymn. There are also those who would hope that on a Sunday like the Sunday that I would cede the pulpit to them so that we could talk about all the politics going on in the real world. And you Christians want to talk about heaven and all that stuff. You want to be locked in your sanctuary and be quiet in your auditorium. Don't you crazy people know that there's bigger things going on in the world that we all need to address? And preacher, you're irresponsible if you don't speak to the election and who we should vote for and what should we stand for and all of those things. But in a Lutheran pulpit, a Lutheran pastor proclaims the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the greatest message in the history of the world, proclaiming a promise to a people and a culture that so desperately need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ and be led from heads down living and kind of sulking and moping to heads up living with feet on the ground and eyes in the skies, with our hearts resolutely connected to the Lord through faith in Jesus Christ and our lives making an impact on this planet until the Lord takes us home. So let's look at Revelation chapter seven. Let's take a little look at that and find something, each one of us, for our heart and for our souls. Something that has withstood good rulers and evil rulers. And a singular truth that leads us all as Christians into eternity. 
that brings comfort to our souls this morning. That marvelous piece from Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. There was a great multitude who no one could count from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. That's the good news. That's the effect of the gospel. Starting off in a little place called Jerusalem, a little place that I'll probably be in next Sunday with about 48 of my closest friends. We get on the airplane tomorrow, and we're going to fly to Istanbul, we're going to take a hop to Tel Aviv, we're going to be in Jerusalem. Now, I don't know about you, but I picture Jerusalem as little. I don't think Jerusalem is going to, I don't know, Munich or New York City or even L.A. A little quiet backwater place. A city that meant a lot to the people who were there that day, but in the scope of the Roman Empire meant almost nothing. But in Jerusalem, a rabbi named Jesus was executed on a cross after a ministry of only about three years or so. And without the internet, without email, without Elon Musk's Twitter, without books, without the United States Postal Service, without the Pony Express, and without the Wells Fargo stagecoach, there was Jesus and his message. And it went from 11 guys who were broken and defeated and a handful of women who swear that they laid him in the grave on Friday and he was gone on Sunday morning. It goes from that handful of people to a crowd so big and so glorious and so diverse that nobody could count it. And the victory, the victory is here as well. All the signs of victory. In a place and a time when the people of God had been slaves repeatedly at John's writing of this. From the Egyptians to the Assyrians to the Babylonians and now to the Romans. Politically, the Jewish people, the people of God had nothing. But in Christ, the Lamb, there was victory, palms waving, white robes, purity and removal of sin, separation from God removed, and God being right there in the middle of everything. All of that is here in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. And all that is theirs in the picture is ours today through faith in Jesus Christ. Don't look down. Look up. Because up and to the center is where Jesus is. For the Lamb is at the center of the throne. Not defeated, but victorious. And that victory is our victory. We win. The next funeral message that I preach that says, Well, here we are. Good luck. This really stinks. See, another sign of defeat. That'll be the first one like that I've because we are winners. We, we win. In case you're following the story here, we win. And we just don't win a, a, an electoral battle. We win in eternity. The fight of good versus evil, good wins. Decided by the Lamb who was slain. Jesus gives his life and we receive the victory. He's not elected to the center spot of the throne by a, a slim majority. He's not taking polling data Rather, he took the cross on his back and climbed up Calvary. There he suffered and died. 
He earned the spot at the center by his death. And by overcoming death and by rising from the grave, he delivers that victory to you and me, to the list of people we read, to the people who are on your hearts this morning, and to all Christians for all times who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Amen. Amen. And then the Lord answers the question, what's heaven like? What are we going to do? And there's so many kind of infantile pieces of that, right? When I was a kid, I thought you go to heaven and you go fishing and you always catch a fish. You never run out of bait. That would be fun, but I'm not sure it's like that. What do we do there? If you believe the Bugs Bunny cartoons and Mickey Mouse and all of those things, we float around and all our loved ones are floating around with harps on clouds and all that stupid stuff. That's not what... The scriptures say, what's heaven like? Well, here's a picture of it. What's there is this. He who sits on the throne, the one who, who, who loves us, throws his tent over us. John uses that same imagery in John chapter 1 where he says, and the word became flesh and threw his tent around us. In heaven there is protection and inclusion in the best sense. All the feelings of fear that you have of being vulnerable, of being exposed, of being alone are all done away with because the tent of God's grace, the tent of the presence of the Almighty has been thrown around you and covers you. All the issues and things that separate people, language and race and power, all of those things are done away with under the tent of the Almighty. He throws his tent over all his people and provides us all and those who have gone before us with protection. And perhaps the reason why it's so beautiful in here this morning is because we get just a little taste of that. Just a little piece of what it is to live under the tent of the Almighty. A little shadow of what it will look like now and forever. That's what's for us in heaven. If I'm checked in with a harp and a cloud, I'll be disappointed. If I'm offered a handshake and a hug by the Almighty, and he puts his arm around me, and he says, all that garbage you've been dragging in your life, it's all gone. You're with me now. It'll be okay. If you haven't been to your mailbox in the last two weeks, you've missed the onslaught of coarse and harsh mailings. Mailings for politics that pitted candidate against candidate, person against person, party against party. If you love Jesus, you'd vote for the Christian guy. If you're a, a, a real Christian, then you'd mark your ballot this way. If you're not a Christian, then you stand for things that are evil and horrible. I don't know about you, I'm about ready to leave the country for a couple weeks and let that all kind of settle down. Vote for the candidate that I like and their cronies because you'll be better and they love Jesus more than the other guy. That's a bunch of hooey. Vote for my guy because my guy's honest and the other guy's a dishonest and corrupt individual. 
Revelation 7 says that that sort of discourse goes away. The coarseness and the harshness of the human experience in a broken earth goes away. It does not exist in heaven. Here's the reality. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb who sits on the throne. And Christians have a marvelous sense of that, which means we have a hope that transcends what goes on here and now. In heaven, all that coarseness, all that harshness that rips humanity away with this kind of aching hunger and thirst will be gone. And the quest of power and authority will be dead. And so we keep our eyes up and our feet down on the ground, always looking up, never looking down, always up, never down, looking to the center of all things and the victory that we have in Jesus until that day we are in heaven. One of my dear friends, a friend of our congregation, I had to read her name on that list today, fine, fine leader in our church, Arlene Darlin. Arlene would always come out of the church, she'd give me a big hug and she'd say, that was the best sermon I've ever heard. I miss Arlene a lot. <laughs> She'd always say, Pastor, what do we do? What do we do? You got to tell us in your sermon, what do we got to do? Here's what you got to do. First Peter chapter 2. Live such good lives among the pagans that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We do that as a church. We need to keep doing that as a church. We need to double down on doing that as a church. Live such good lives among the pagans that they will see your good works and glorify God. Choose godly leaders that support life and make sacrifices for the people they serve. Those are the ones who reflect the will of God. Live such good lives lives among the pagans out there that even they would turn to God and say thank you for those nutty Christians who sacrifice and make a difference in the hearts and lives of the people they don't even know what's God doing in heaven He's just kind of sitting on the throne and chilling out and singing for all the saints, listening to handbells and string quartets and organ music? No. God is doing what he's always done. He's leading. He's leading them and us to springs of living water. For those who've had lives of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, we will be satisfied. And those tears, what is God doing in heaven? He's taking care of those tears. Tears that come from grief, that some shed today, others shed for fear, and tears are shed in the quiet places of our lives and we're afraid. Still others, tears flow from anxiety and worry and pain inflicted by sickness and injury. 
tears that flow because of hearts that struggle and lives that are lived in a broken world among a broken people trying to figure it out. Tears that come from the fear of living in a chaotic time. What's God doing in heaven? He's taking away all the broken pieces so that when we get to heaven, when we arrive, whether today or in a hundred years, the Lord greets us with a hug and a smile and a hanky. He nods his head, opens his arms, and he says, I'm glad you're here. I knew you'd make it the moment you were baptized. Come in, my beloved child. Come in and let me handle that tear on your cheek. Because that tear right there is your last 